You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. So, again, it's good to be with you. I'm excited to be in this new space, and it doesn't smell of skunks or chlorine or pancakes. So we're, uh, we're <laughs> moving forward. This does not mean we have arrived as a church. It just really means that we still have a lot of work left to do to reach Odessa with the gospel. So thank you for spending your Sunday with us. Let's get started. We're going to be wrapping up our study in Galatians today. So I love sports. Um, The time between like Thanksgiving and Monday, tomorrow, Tuesday, is my favorite sports season of the year. You have the college football bowl season, and then it ends with March Madness. Um, I don't know why they call it March Madness because the championship's in April, but here it is. The championship is like tomorrow or the next day, and I'm super excited for it. So I've been watching a lot of sports on TV. My wife, on the other hand, watches this show called Project Runway. (laughs) It's a show about high fashion, which clearly I don't understand. Um, It's a show about all of these pretentious people making clothes for all these other pretentious people who are then judged by Heidi Klum and other fashionistas and fashionistos. Um, These models will walk down the runway, stop, pose, let the judges check out their fits and turn around and go the other way. Um, And then the, the designers have spent several hours designing these outfits for these models to wear. They're working really hard on these garments and then the judges like that looks terrible. That's what they say. Uh, you did a horrible job. Uh, and again, I just put on a shirt and jeans most days and, and call it good. Fashion to me is really interesting in this way because there are some things that were popular when I was growing up that went out of style, and now they're back. And, that, and then I also know I'm old because the things that are back are like on their way out again, um, like mine and Matthew Garrett's Birkenstocks. Uh, And hopefully Crocs aren't aren't too far behind on their way out, but there's one thing, though, that has seemed to have endured the test of time, in my lifetime at least, and that's a a cross necklace, or if you're super edgy, like a cross tattoo somewhere on your body. We adorn our bodies with with these crosses, we hang them on the walls of our homes, and it's a bold statement to make. When you wear it on your body or you get it tatted on your arm uh, or you hang it on the wall of your house. Because consider what you are communicating when you do that. In our day, it's a symbol of the Christian faith, meaning you are identifying with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, culturally, it's become more of, of a fashion statement than an actual belief. In the time of Paul, the cross was an instrument of torture. No one would have ever worn a cross necklace as a piece of jewelry in the time of Paul. It would be like us today wearing an electric chair around our neck, like an electric chair necklace. The cross was invented to execute criminals, and then as a practice, the Romans perfected it by adding an emotional component to it, in an effort to create as much shame and humiliation as possible. They would often crucify the convicted criminal naked and exposed for all to see. 
It was a public execution in order to inflict as much shame as possible on the convicted criminal. It was so shameful that the Romans wouldn't even crucify Roman citizens on the cross. And the very mention of the word, the cross, was not even to be uttered by Jews. The Jewish law had a, uh, had a curse written in it that cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So it was so humiliating that the Jews wouldn't even talk about it. And yet with this as the backdrop, we have this Jewish-born Christian, Paul, talking about the cross in his closing arguments in the book of Galatians. He is bringing the cross to the forefront of the minds of this Galatian church. Paul is focused on and centered on the message of the cross. Look, there would be no Christianity without a cross. There would be no faith in Christ without Christ's cross. Jesus cannot be who he says he is without the cross. And if Jesus is not who he says he is, then we exist in this life with no hope and no future because we are still enslaved to our sin. But thankfully, we do have the cross. And we do have the resurrection of Jesus. And therefore, we can be freed from sin's penalty in order to live by Christ. So the question for you this morning is, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And does this matter to you? And if you say, yes, I believe, and yes, it does matter, is your life then reflective of what you say you believe? As we step out of our study of Galatians this week and into the Holy Week on this Palm Sunday, where Jesus rode into Jerusalem, knowing that he would be arrested and put to death, as we are preparing our hearts for Easter to celebrate the resurrection, I want to call you to consider the resurrection of Jesus. And if you are living a life marked by the holiness, marked by the grace, marked by the forgiveness of Jesus to you. So I want to pray this morning, and then we're just going to jump into our text. Lord, we need you. Lord, thank you that on this day 2,000 years ago that you rode into town on a donkey, humbled, humbled yourself as our king. Lord, and as the crowd shouted Hosanna, and then later in the week they would shout crucify, Lord, we're guilty of the exact same things. Lord, I just ask that your grace would be present, Lord, that we would receive your forgiveness, Lord, that we would experience your mercy this morning. Lord, we are so undeserving of your love to us, and yet in kindness you came. Thank you for the cross. Lord, may you be magnified and exalted in this room this morning. Church, if you're willing, I'd ask that you'd pray for yourself that the Lord would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed, and that the Lord would bring conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. 
Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. It's in your holy name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, Galatians 6, beginning in verse 11, Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not keep themselves, do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So these are Paul's closing arguments to this section. To summarize the whole letter of Galatians up to this point, I'll try to do it in a few sentences. The letter is about the nature of salvation. How are we saved? Paul is writing to uh, combat false teachings about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Namely that these false teachers came in and said that you had to be circumcised in order to be made right with God. What these false teachers are essentially saying is that faith in the resurrection of Jesus is necessary, but so is keeping the Old Testament law. Paul then goes on to say later in the letter that the law is good because it shows us our need for Jesus. Paul says that the law exists to show us that we cannot be good enough on our own and that the law is actually meant to draw us closer to God and his promises by showing us our neediness for him. And yet, there are those who make the law more about our performance and our rule-keeping rather than obedience to Christ through faith and repentance and faithfulness to God because of his faithfulness to us. So Paul says that if you are a believer in Jesus, if you believe that Jesus is God, born of a virgin, this Jesus who lived a perfect sinless life and died in your place, if you believe in Jesus by faith that your sins are forgiven and that Jesus is your Savior and that Jesus is your Lord, then you have been made right with God. You have been justified by faith in God. Almost like you never sin, not almost, like you never sinned in the first place. All of your sin, all of your shame has been placed upon Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus rose, he left your sin and shame in the empty tomb. You have been made right by God's grace, the unmerited favor of God to you. You have been forgiven and you have also been adopted you can now live a life by the Spirit of God and no longer live a life marked by your fleshly desires. You've been set free. For freedom, Paul says, you have been set free. And this is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Your freedom is to live for Christ, and that is evidenced by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul says, against such things, there is no law. Then he also says, works of the flesh are evident. These are the things that are contrary to the fruit of the Spirit. And then he says, those who sow to the Spirit, those who pursue the things of Jesus, those whose lives are evidenced by the grace and kindness of Jesus, will reap then from the Spirit. Think about it in terms of like a farmer or a gardener. You plant your seed, and then your crop go, grows, and then you get to enjoy your harvest. Those who sow by the Spirit will reap a harvest of godly things in your life. 
And the opposite is true. Those who continually sow to the flesh will then reap from the flesh. And Paul says that those who live in willful, habitual, ongoing, unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul then tells us we need the church. We need believers in Jesus who have received the Holy Spirit and are in relationship within a local expression of the body of Christ. We need the church, which is a gift to us from the Spirit of God to call us out of our unbelief and call us to faith and repentance and right belief in God together as a family. And as the church, we're also called to bear one another's burdens. We're called to enter into the sufferings and the struggles and the crises of our brothers and sisters in Christ, bearing with one another, bearing one another's burdens, and so fulfilling the law of Christ. And Paul picks up the argument and his pen from here. Paul is now writing this letter. As he always did, Paul would dictate his letters through what is known as an amanuensis, or think of like a secretary or a scribe. And now he has grabbed the pen from this person, and he is now writing this letter himself. He is putting his signature on the letter. If Paul were sending a text message, it would be in all caps. Verse 12 and 13, he reminds the Galatians that these false teachers do not care about the state of the souls of the church of Galatia. Rather, they only care about themselves. They care about the religious accolades. They want to avoid persecution for the sake of the cross. And they only want to boast in the amount of people they've convinced to be circumcised. With this practice, the false teachers are yet again showing they don't really believe in the cross of Jesus as sufficient. They didn't want to be persecuted, so they compromised. Persecution in the early church was not coming from Rome, uh, pagan Rome. It was coming from the Jews. So to avoid persecution and possibly a great loss of social standing, these false teachers were saying that they believed in Jesus, and yet they were compromising their belief in Jesus to satisfy a vocal group of Jews who were against Jesus. They believe in Jesus, but just to make sure we're covered religiously and socially, I'm going to also continue to practice the finer points of Judaism just in case, just in case Jesus isn't who he says he is, just in case Jesus' cross and his resurrection aren't enough. So factually, these false teachers really didn't believe in Jesus at all. They didn't believe the cross was good enough. They didn't believe the cross was powerful enough. They didn't even believe the cross was fully necessary because they taught a message that said you could be saved by being good enough, by doing enough. And a lot of us live like this too. Our culture has a lot of Jesus-y language, but a lot of times our lives are not reflective of the calling that Jesus has placed on our lives. These false teachers have made salvation a matter of human achievement, a matter of good works and rule following, as, to, as opposed to what it really is. 
It is divine accomplishment that we are saved. Christ went to the cross, and Christ calls us to faith. Not by works, but by faith. Jesus Christ did what we could not. Jesus purchased our pardon. We are sinful, rebellious, enemies against God, enemies of God. And Jesus, knowing all of this, knowing we would never choose to follow him on our own, came to earth in humility and lived the life that we were called to live, but wouldn't and didn't. Jesus was then arrested and falsely tried. Jesus was then sentenced to die. Jesus received a death sentence that was reserved for us because of the penalty of sin. Jesus died our death. And now because Jesus, the perfect sinless sacrifice in the place of sinners, we will never have to die that death. Jesus finished what the law couldn't. You can never be good enough. But Jesus endured the cross. And Jesus rose from the grave. And by his grace, by his unmerited favor of God, Jesus now offers you forgiveness. We can't add anything to the cross. Because we can never measure up. We can't add anything to the cross because of our sin. But because of the cross... We don't have to add anything to it. God accepts Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, and this is divine accomplishment. Tony Marita says that if it is about human achievement, then the praise belongs to the person. But if it is about divine accomplishment, then the praise belongs to Christ. Paula is telling us again that there is no neutral space here. You sow to the Spirit. You live for God. Or you sow to the flesh and you live in your sin. You worship and glorify and honor Jesus or you worship and glorify and honor yourself. There is no neutral space. So consider your life. Do you live to make much of Jesus or do you live to make much of yourself? Do you spend time with Christ in prayer? Do you spend any time in the word? Do you talk about Jesus at all? Do you think about Jesus at all? As you go through your day, do you ever think about your decisions and whether or not they honor Christ? Or are you consumed with like temporal earthly things? How you look, what he or she thinks about you, the pursuit of riches. Are you dependent upon Jesus for your life, your sustenance? Or are you just trying to white-knuckle your way through it? Do you believe that Jesus is your provider and your sustainer and that he is for you in the way that a good, loving father fights for his children? Or are you just kind of coasting through? Coasting through life, trying to survive, trying to build a name for yourself. Look, if your boast is in yourself, if you function like you are the center of your own universe, then Paul highlights a contradiction for us. He says that those 
that desire to be saved by circumcision. In our day, that should translate to those who desire to be saved by like good works and rule-keeping must keep the whole law, and no one can. If you're sitting out here this morning thinking, I'm a good person, I want to tell you, you're not. Not even in your best moments are you good enough to earn salvation. You have a sin nature, and therefore you have not just made bad choices from time to time. You have committed cosmic treason against the God of the universe. By your very nature, you are opposed to God. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Do this. And do this perfectly all the time, you'll be okay. Love the Lord your God always and forever, every single moment, with everything that you are, and you'll be okay. And as you honestly consider your life, you don't do this perfectly. Not even for one second of your life have you ever done this perfectly. You need Christ's perfect, sinless sacrifice of himself to purchase and redeem your sinful condition. Christ willingly paid your penalty. Christ willingly paid for your death by his own death. Christ paid your penalty that sin created. And now you are free then to pursue loving God in this way. And when you fail to measure up to the standard of perfection set by God himself, there's forgiveness for you because of what Christ has done. Look at what Paul says, Galatians 6, 14 and 15. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And in Paul's day, this is a scandalous statement. Paul is saying that his boast is not in himself and what he has done, and it never can be, because if it is, then we don't understand just how sinful we are or how good and necessary the cross of Jesus is for us. Paul says, boast in the cross, boast in the humiliation of Jesus at his crucifixion. That's the only way to die to our sin and live to Christ. When our boasts are in Jesus, we are communicating that Christ has accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. We are not trusting in our own merits, of which there are none. We're not trusting in our performance, which will never be good enough. But we're trusting in the merits of Jesus and his performance. He's done it. When we boast in the cross of Christ, we are confessing that Christ has lived the life that we were supposed to live and couldn't. And that Christ died the death that we should have died, but now we won't ever have to. Because there is a great mercy and a great grace of Jesus to forgive us. We have been made new. According to this text, Our outward devotion to a religious system doesn't count towards our salvation. But what matters then is rather Christ's sacrifice to us and faith in him for salvation. 
we are made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you are in Christ, then you are united with Christ. Philip Ryken says that the cross is not something just to boast about. It's not something that we just boast about. It's the only thing to boast about. The cross is the only thing to boast about because it means that God loves us enough to die for us. It means that he has saved us through his death of his own dear son. It means that we have been redeemed, that Christ has paid the whole price of our salvation. The cross means that we have forgiveness for our sins, that Christ offered himself as an atoning sacrifice to take away our guilt. It means that we are justified, that God now accepts us as righteous in his sight. His wrath has been turned away, and now we can stand innocent before him. You have two choices. You can boast in Jesus, or you can boast in yourself. To boast in Jesus and to boast in the cross means that you stop trusting in yourself. You stop trusting in your performance. You stop trusting in your behavior. You stop trusting in your good works. You stop trusting in your giving or your serving or your church attendance or whatever else it may be. But you trust in Jesus for your salvation, confessing that he is good and we are not. We trust in him alone for the forgiveness that purchases our salvation. If you are in Christ, you have been made new. You have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, which leads to your repentance, which means you turn away from your sin, and you are daily seeking to put sin to death in your life. Uh, the theological word for that is uh, mortification. Devante's in the back, so I'll give the A. Hey. Uh, as you mortify your sin, then you get closer to Christ. That's sanctification, growing more to be like Christ. And the closer you are to Christ, the more your desires for him are changed and the more you desire Christ. And the less you desire your sin, the more you desire Christ, the less you desire your sin. And then your desires become to live for Christ. Again, the theological word there is vivification. And that leads to our growth in Christ. Death to sin leads to growth in Christ. Growth in Christ leads to life in Christ. And life in Christ leads to growth in holiness. We have been set apart by God. Our new creation status means we have a new nature with new desires. And these desires are for Christ. And all of this happens because of the Holy Spirit's work in you. You don't wake up in the morning one day and think, Today's the day that mortification is going to take place. And maybe you do, but if you aren't filling your life up with Christ and the things of Jesus, then you probably won't have any victory here. You grow to be more like Jesus by spending time with Jesus. So think about it like this. Um, parents in here, you'll probably relate to this. I have noticed that some of my key phrases that I utter all the time, and they're mostly song lyrics. My kids are starting to repeat. So the other day we were leaving the house, and Levi's like, hey, let's walk it out like Usher. 
And, I was, and then last week, a song came on the radio, and Maya goes, mmm, this is a banger. And both of these things I say way too much, apparently. A banger means this song is awesome, uh, just to translate a little Tanner for you. So follow this logic out with me. If God is our Father, and we are His children, wouldn't it make sense that if we're following God the way that he asks us to, with this kind of familial intimacy between a father and a child, then we would start to look like God himself and sound like God himself. And how do we know what God himself sounds like? Jesus in the Bible. And Jesus is Holy Spirit indwells us. When we sow to the Spirit, we reap from the Spirit. When you are spending time with God, your desires for God increase. And when you are spending time with God, you grow to start looking like Jesus, which is the goal of our Christian faith. It's not that we get to heaven, which is a nice reward, but the goal of being a Christian is that we look more like Christ. Our desires are to be anchored in Christ. Christians. Do you desire Christ? And look, I'm not talking about like moments of weakness where sometimes you don't really desire Christ and you sin. There's grace for that. There's room for struggle here. But I'm asking you, if you ever desire Christ, do you ever desire to pray? or to spend time in the Word, or to be at church at all? Do you desire Christ? If not, you may need to consider if indeed you are a new creation, like Paul says. And if you're not and you want to be, Christ is offering you this. Christ is offering you this through faith and repentance. Do you desire Christ? Verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Paul then says that if you walk according to this rule, the rule of faith and forgiveness, you have the peace of God and you also have the peace from God. So these are two different things. The peace of God means security and rest and delight as you experience your sonship through adoption. Peace from God means that you are no longer God's enemy, but his friend and his child as you experience justification, being made right with God. And this is accomplished by the mercy of God. God in his mercy has spared us from his wrath and from the punishment of eternal separation from him in hell because of God's great mercy. We will inherit him for all eternity. And by saying this, and by Paul adding upon the Israel of God, Paul is saying that this is no longer a blessing reserved for Jews, the nation of Israel, but now Jews and Gentiles alike are called into one family, the church. The church of God, the new Israel, by faith in Christ, are now all children of Abraham, regardless of race, gender, or class. 
The old covenant has been fulfilled and made new in Jesus, and we are now all members of the household of God, the church, by faith in Christ. Verse 17 and 18. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Paul ends this letter with the mic drop. From now on, he says, I'm not going to be bothered by the opinions of false teachers or the opinions of culture or the opinions of any other contradictory party that has anything negative to say about me or anything different to say about Jesus. The only opinion of me that matters is what Christ thinks. And Christ is considered Paul worthy of suffering. Suffering for Christ in the way that Christ has called all believers to endure and all believers to persevere and all believers to press on in spite of trials and suffering because Jesus is our reward. Paul's struggles were often physical, as he says, when he says he bears the marks on his body. He has literal scars on his body from beatings for the sake of being Christ's disciple. And yet, in spite of all of that, he faithfully continues his gospel ministry. Paul was willing to take a beating for Jesus. Paul's scars are like the scars of Jesus. Jesus died to save the world by the forgiveness of, his, of sins, and Paul bears scars for the message of Jesus. Paul did not avoid persecution like his opponents. He endured persecution because Jesus is worth it. Are you willing to suffer for Christ? Is Christ worth it to you? Are you willing to lose relationships? Are you willing to endure being despised and rejected by family, friends, or coworkers? Are you willing to be ridiculed for your faith? Are you willing to do the hard things like quit your job to pursue a ministry? Are you willing to stay in Odessa instead of going somewhere, quote, better, unquote, um, in order that people may hear the gospel through you? Are you willing to do what Jesus is calling you to do, even if that means hardships? Some of you won't have to suffer physically for the sake of following Jesus, but some of you will have to suffer socially and emotionally as our friends and families will turn on us for our faith. But Jesus promises himself as the reward for our faithfulness because he is faithful. If you are suffering for the sake of Christ, there is encouragement in centuries of faithful brothers and sisters who have gone before us to show us that it's worth it. The word used here is the word stigma or stigmata. It's the word used for branding of slaves. Paul is saying he is a branded slave of Christ, a bondservant to Christ. Christ Jesus is his master, and the word of God is his authority. So what say you? Are you branded by Christ? Or are you still a slave to your sin? Verse 18 tells us that the only way that this is possible is by the grace of God to us. Grace again, the unmerited favor of God. Apart from this grace, we don't have Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We don't have his Holy Spirit indwelling us to lead us and to guide us and to convict us. And apart from this grace, we don't have salvation. 
The gospel of grace gives us life. We need Christ's grace and mercy to forgive us, and we need his grace and mercy to live by as believers in Jesus. So are you living a life marked by grace or by sin? There can be no in-between. Examine your life now. There is a cross, and there is an empty tomb. And we have a perfect, loving, tender, and merciful Father who sees us right where we're at. And with all of our struggles and doubts and fears, he wants us. Not because we're good, but because he is. He wants you. He's offering you forgiveness and grace. So repent of your sins and believe, church. Believe in Jesus by his great grace and mercy to you. Let's pray.